Chapter 41, Part 2 of The Children of the Abbey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Maria Roche. Chapter 41, Part 2. The destruction of Amanda's thoughts were now abated from having everything adjusted relative to her future conduct and the company of the prioress, who returned to her as soon as she had dined, prevented her losing the little composure she had with such difficulty acquired. She besought the prioress not to delay writing after her departure and to relate faithfully everything which had happened in consequence of her flight. She entreated her not to let a mistaken compassion for her feelings influence her to conceal anything, as anything like the appearance of concealment in her letter would only torture her with anxiety and suspense. The prioress summarily promised she would obey her request, and Amanda, with tears, regretted that she was now unable to recompense the kindness of the prioress and the sisterhood, as she had lately intended doing by Lord Mortimer's desire, as well as their own inclination. The prioress begged her not to indulge any regret on that account, as they considered themselves already liberally recompensed, and had, besides, quite sufficient to satisfy their humble desires. Amanda said she meant to leave a letter on the dressing table for Lord Mortimer, with the notes which he had given her enclosed in it. The pictures and the ring, said she, with a falling tear, I cannot part with. For the things which she had ordered from the neighbouring town, she told the prioress, she would leave money in her hands. Also, a present for the women, who had been engaged to attend her to England, as a small recompense for her disappointment. She meant only to take some linen and her mourning to Scotland. The rest of her things, including her music and books, at some future and better period, might be sent after her. Amanda was in debt to the sisterhood for three months board and lodging, which was ten guineas. Of the two hundred pounds which Lord Mortimer had given her on leaving Castle Carberry, one hundred and twenty pounds remained, so that though unable to answer the claims of gratitude, she thanked heaven she was able to fulfil those of justice. This, she told the prioress, who instantly declared, that in the name of the whole sisterhood, she would take upon her to refuse anything from her. Amanda did not contest the point being secretly determined how to act. The prioress drank tea with her. When over, Amanda said she would lie down in order to try and be composed against Lord Mortimer come. The prioress accordingly withdrew, saying she should not be disturbed till then. By this means, Amanda was enabled to be in the readiness for delivering her letter to Lord Sherbury at the proper hour. Her heart beat with apprehension as it approached. She dreaded Lord Mortimer again, surprising her amongst the ruins, or some of the nuns following her to them. At last the clock gave the signal for keeping her appointment. She arose, trembling from the bed, and opened the door. She listened, and no noise announced anyone being near. The moments were precious. She gilded through the gallery, and had the good fortune to find the hall door open. She hastened to the ruins and found Lord Sherbury already waiting there. She presented him in the letter in silence. He received it in the same manner. But when he saw her turning away to depart, 
he snatched her hand and in a voice that denoted the most violent agitation, exclaimed, Tell me, tell me, Miss Fitzalan, is this letter propitious? It is, replied she in a faltering voice. Then may heaven eternally bless you, he cried, falling at her feet and wrapping his arms around her. His posture shook Tamanda and his detention terrified her. Let me go, my lord, said she, in pity to me, in mercy to yourself, let me go, for one moment longer, and we may be discovered. Lord Sherbury started up. From whom, cried he, can I hear about you? From the prioress of St. Catherine's, replied Amanda, in a trembling voice. She only will know the secret of my retreat. He again snatched her hand and kissed it with vehemence. Farewell, thou angel of a woman he exclaimed, and disappeared amongst the ruins. Amanda hurried back, dreading every moment to meet Lord Mortimer, but she neither saw him nor any other person. She had scarcely gained her chamber when the prioress came to inform her his lordship was in the parlour. She instantly repaired to it. The air had a little changed the, the deadly hue of her complexion, so that from her looks he supposed her better and her words strengthened the supposition. She talked with him, forced herself to eat some supper, and checked the tears from falling, which sprang to her eyes, whenever he mentioned the happiness they must experience when united, the pleasure they should enjoy at Thornbury, and the delight Lady Martha and Lady Armorinta would experience whenever they met. Amanda desired him not to come to breakfast the next morning, nor to the convent till after dinner, as she should be busy preparing for her journey. She would have no time to devote to him. He wanted to convince her he should not retard her preparation by coming, but she would not allow this. Amanda passed another wretched night. She breakfasted in the morning with the nuns, who expressed their regret at losing her, a regret, however, mitigated by the hope of shortly seeing her again. As Lord Mortimer had promised to bring her to Casa Carberry as soon as she had visited his friends in England. This was a trying moment for Amanda. She could scarcely conceal their emotions or keep herself from weeping aloud at the mention of a promise never to be fulfilled. She swallowed her breakfast in haste and withdrew to her chamber on pretence of settling her things. Here she was immediately followed by the nuns, entreating they might severally be employed in, in assisting her. She thanked them with her usual sweetness, but assured them no assistance was necessary, as she had but a few things to pack, never having unlocked the chest which had come from Castle Carberry. They retired on receiving this assurance, and Amanda, fearful of another interruption, instantly sat down to write her farewell letter to Lord Mortimer. To Lord Mortimer, my lord, a destiny which neither of us can control, forbids our union. In vain, were obstacles encountered and apparently overcome. One has arisen to oppose it, which we could never have thought of, and yielding to it, as I am compelled by dire necessity to do. I find myself separated from you, without the remotest hope of our ever meeting again, without being allowed to justify my conduct, or offer one excuse which might, in some degree, palliate the abominable in ingratitude and deceit I may appear guilty of. Appear, I say, for in reality my heart is a stranger to either, 
and is now agonised at the sacrifice it is compelled to make. But I will not hurt your lordship's feelings by dwelling on my own sufferings. Already I have caused you so much pain, but never again shall I cross your path to disturb your peace and shade your prospect of felicity. No, my lord, removed to a tedious distance, the name I love no more will sink upon my ear. The delusive form of happiness no more will mock me. Uh, everything turned out according to my wishes. Perhaps happiness so great, so unexpected, might have produced a dangerous revolution in my sentiments and withdrawn my thoughts too much from heaven to earth. If so, oh, blessed be the power that snatched from my lips the cup of joy, though at the very moment I was tasting the delightful beverage. I cannot bid you pity me, though I know myself deserving of compassion. I cannot bid you forbear condemning me, though I know myself undeserving of censor. In this letter I enclose the notes I received from your lordship, the picture and the ring I have retained. They will soon be my only vestige of former happiness. Farewell, Lord Mortimer, dear and invaluable friend. Farewell forever. May that peace, that happiness you so truly deserve to possess be yours and may you never again meet with such interruptions as they have received from the unfortunate Amanda M. Fitzalan. This letter was blistered with her tears. She laid it in a drawer till evening and then proceeded to pack whatever she meant to take with her in a little trunk. In the midst of this business, the prioress came in to inform her that she had seen the master of the weary and settled everything with him. He not only promised to be secret, but to sail the following morning at four o'clock and conduct her himself to Mrs. Macpherson's. About three, he was to come to the convent for her. He had also promised to provide everything necessary on board for her. Matters being thus arranged, Amanda told the prioress to avoid suspicion she would leave the money she intended for the women who had been engaged to accompany her to England on her dressing table, with a few lines purporting who it was for. The prioress approved of her doing so, as it would prevent anyone from suspecting she was privy to her departure. She was obliged to leave her directly, and Amanda took the opportunity of putting up fifteen guineas in a paper, five for the women and ten for the nuns. She wished to do more for them, but feared to obey the dictates of generosity, while her own prospect of provisions was so uncertain. She wrote as follows to the prioress, to Mrs. Dermot, Dear Madam, was my situation otherwise than it is now, be assured I never should have offered the trifle you will find in this paper as anywhere adequate to the discharge of my debt to you and your amenable companions. I regret my inability, more than I express, of providing my gratitude to you and them for all your kindness. Never will they be obliterated from my remembrance. And he who has promised to regard those that befriend the orphan will reward you for them. I've also left five guineas for the women. You were so good as to engage to attend me to England. I trust you will think them a sufficient recompense for any trouble or disappointment I may have occasioned her. Farewell, dear Mrs. Dermot. Dear and amenable inhabitants of St. Catherine's, farewell. As Amanda will never forget you in hers, so let her never be forgotten in your horizons. 
and never cease to believe her. Grateful, sincere and affectionate, A. M. Fitzalan. By this time she was summoned to dinner. Her spirit was sunk in the lowest dejection at the idea of leaving the amenable women who had been so kind to her, and above all at the idea of the last sad evening she was to pass with Lord Mortimer. Her lordship came early to the convent. The dejected look at Amanda immediately struck him and renewed all his apprehensions about her health. She answered his tender inquiries by saying she was fatigued. Perhaps, said he, you would like to rest one day and not commence your journey tomorrow. No, no, cried Amanda, it shall not be deferred. Tomorrow, continu continued she with a smile of anguish, I will commence it. Lord Mortimer thanked her for a resolution he imagined, dictated by an ardent desire to please him, but at the same time again expressed his fears that she was ill. Amanda perceived that she did not exert herself, her dejections would leave him to inquiries she would find it difficult to evade, but as to exert herself was impossible. In order to withdraw his attention in some degree from herself, she proposed that, as this was the last evening, they would be at the convent, they should invite the nuns to drink tea with them. Lord Mortimer immediately acquiesced in the proposal, and the invitation being sent was accepted. But in the conversation of the whole party was of a melancholy kind. Amanda was so much beloved among them that the prospect of losing her filled them with the regret which even the idea of seeing her as soon again could not banish. About nine, which was their hour of prayers, they rose to retire and would have taken leave of Lord Mortimer had he not informed them that on Miss Fitzalan's account he would not commence the journey next day till ten o'clock, at which time he would again have the pleasure of seeing them. When they withdrew, he endeavoured to cheer Amanda and besought her to exert her spirits. Of his own accord, he said, he would leave her early, that she might get as much rest as possible against the ensuing day. He accordingly rose to depart. What an agonising moment for Amanda! to hear, to behold the man so tenderly beloved for the last time, to think that here, that hour, the next night, she should be far, far away from him, considered as a treacherous, ungrateful creature, despised, perhaps excreated as a source of perpetual disquiet and sorrow to him. Her heart swelled at those ideas with feelings she thought would burst it, and when he folded her to his bosom and bid her be cheerful against the next morning, she involuntarily returned the pleasure by straining him to her heart in convulsive agitation, whilst a shower of tears burst from her. Lord Mortimer, shocked and surprised at these tears and emotions, reseated her, for her agitation was contagious and he trembled so much he could not support her, then throwing himself at her feet, My Amanda, my beloved girl, cried he, what is the matter? Is any wish of your heart yet unfulfilled? If so, let no mistaken notion of your delicacy influence you to conceal it. On your happiness, you know mine depends. Tell me, therefore, I entreat, I conjure you, Tell me, is there anything I can do to restore you to cheerfulness? Oh no, said Amanda. 
all that a mortal could do to serve me, you have already done. And my gratitude, the fervent sense I have of the obligations I lie under to you, I cannot fully express. May heaven, raising her streaming eyes, may heaven recompense your goodness by bestowing the choices of its blessings on you. That, said Lord Mortimer, are smiling. It has already done in giving you to me, for you are the choicest blessing it could bestow. But tell me, what has dejected you in this manner? Something more than fatigue, I am sure. Amanda assured him he was mistaken, and fearful of his further inquiries told him she only waited for his departure to retire to rest, which she was convinced would do her good. Lord Mortimer instantly arose from his kneeling posture. Farewell then, my dear Amanda, cried he. Farewell and be well and cheerful against the morning. She pressed his hands between hers and laying her cold wet cheek upon it. Farewell, said she. When we next meet, I shall, I trust, be well and cheerful. For in heaven alone, thought she at that moment, we shall ever meet again. And the spot in which he left her, Amanda stood motionless till she heard the all door closed after him. All composure then forsook her, and in an agony of tears and sobs she threw herself on the seat he had occupied. The good prioress, guessing what her feelings at this moment must be, was at hand, and came in with drops and water, which she forced her to take, and mingled the tears of sympathy with hers. Her soothing attentions in a little time had the effect she desired. They revived in some degree her unhappy young friend, who exclaimed that the severest trial she could ever possibly experience was now over. And will, I trust and believed, replied the prioress, even in this life be yet rewarded. It was agreed that Amanda should put on her habit and be prepared against the man came for her. Pyrrhus promised as soon as the house was at rest to follow her to her chamber. Amanda accordingly went to her apartment and put on her travelling dress. She was soon followed by the pyrrhus who brought in bread, wine and cold chicken. But the full heart of Amanda would not allow her to partake of them and her tears, in spite of her efforts to restrain them, again burst forth. She was sure, she said, the pyrrhus would immediately let her know if any intelligence arrived of her brother, and she again besought her to write as soon as possible after her departure and to be minute. She left the letters, one for Lord Mortimer and the other for the pyrrhus on the table, and then with a kind of melancholy impatience waited for the man, who was punctual to the appointed hour of three and announced his arrival by a tap at the window. She instantly rose and embraced the pyrrhus in silence, who almost as much affected as herself had only the power to say, God bless you, my dear child, and make you as happy as you deserve to be. Amanda shook her head mournfully, as if to say she expected no happiness, and then, softly stepping along the gallery, opened the hall door, where she found the man waiting. Her little trunk was already lying in the hall. She pointed it out to him, and as soon as he had taken it, they departed. Never did any being feel more fallen than Amanda now did. 
What she suffered when quitting the Marchionesses was comparatively happiness to what she now endured. She then looked forward to the protection, comfort and support of her tender parents. Now she had nothing in view which could in the least cheer or alleviate her feelings. She cast her mournful eyes around and the object she beheld heightened, if possible, her anguish. She beheld the old trees which shaded the grave of her father waving in the morning breeze. And oh, how fervently at that moment did she wish that by his side she was laid beneath their shelter. She turned from them with a heart-rendering sigh which reached the ear of the man who trodded before her. He instantly turned and seeing her pale and trembling told her he had an arm at her service which she gladly accepted being scarcely able to support herself. A small boat was waiting for them about half a mile above Costa Carberry. It conveyed them in a few moments to the vessel, which the master previously told her would be on the way directly. She was pleased to find his wife on board, who conducted Amanda to the cabin, where she found breakfast laid out with neatness for her. She took some tea and a little bread, being almost exhausted with fatigue, her companion, in putting her dejection of fears of crossing the sea, assured her the passage would be very short, and bid her observe how plainly they could see the Scottish hills, now partially gilded by the beams of the rising sun, but beautiful as they appeared. Amanda's eyes were turned from them to a more interesting object, Castle Carberry. She asked the woman if, she thought, the castle could be seen from the opposite coast, and she replied in the negative. I am sorry for it, said Amanda mournfully. She continued at the window for the melancholy pleasure of contemplating it, till compelled by sickness to lie down on the bed. The woman attended her with the most assiduous care, and about four o'clock in the afternoon informed her they had reached Port Patrick. Amanda arose, and sending for the master, told him she did not wish to go to the inn. She would thank him to Ira Shares, to carry her directly to Mrs. Macpherson. He said she should be obeyed, and Amanda, having settled with him for her passage, he went on shore for that purpose, and soon, and soon returned to inform her a carriage was ready. Amanda, having thanked his wife for her kind attention, stepped into the boat and entered the chaise. The moment she landed, her companion told her he was well acquainted with Mrs. Macpherson, having frequently carried packets from Mrs. Dermot to her. She lived about five miles from Port Patrick, he said, and near the sea coast. They accordingly soon reached her habitation. It was a small, low house of a greyish colour, situated in a field almost covered with thistles and divided from the road by a rugged-looking wall. The sea lay a little distance from it. The coasts hereabouts were extremely rocky, and the prospects on every side wild and dreary in the extreme. Amanda's companion, by her desire, went first into the house to prepare Mrs. Macpherson for her reception. He returned in a few minutes, and telling her she was happy at her arrival, conducted her into the house. From a narrow passage they turned into a small gloomy-looking parlour with a clay floor. Mrs. Macpherson was sitting in an old-fashioned armchair. Her face was sharp and meagre, her stature low and like Otway's ancient Baudain, doubled with age. Her gown was grey stuff, and, though she was so low, 
it was not long enough to reach her ankle. Her black silk apron was curtailed in the same manner, and over a little mob cap she wore an handkerchief tied under the chin. She just nodded to Amanda on her entrance, and putting on a pair of large spectacles, surveyed her without speaking. Amanda presented Mrs Dermot's introductory letter, and then, though unbidded, seated herself on the window seat till she had perused it. A trunk in the meantime was brought in, and she paid for the carriage, requesting at the same time the master of the vessel to wait till she had heard what Mrs Macpherson would say. At length the old lady broke silence, and her voice was quite as sharp as her face. So, child, she said again, surveying Amanda, and then alleviating her spectacles to have a better opportunity of speaking. Why, to be sure, I did design my cousin to get me a young person, but not one so young, so very young as you appear to be. Lord bless you, said the man. If that is a fault, why? It is one will mend every day. Hi, hi, cried the old dame, but it would mend a little too slow for me. However, child, as you are so well recommended, I will try you. My cousin says something of you being well born and having seen better days. However, child, I tell you beforehand, I shall not consider what you have been, but what you are now. I shall therefore expect you to be mild, regular and attentive. No flaunting, no gadding, no chattering, but staid, sober and modest. Bless your heart, said the man. If you look in her face, you will see she'll be all you desire. Hi, hi, so you may say, but I should be very sorry to depend upon the promise of a face. Like the heart, it is often treacherous and deceitful. So pray, young woman, tell me, and remember, I expect a conscientious answer, whether you think you will be able to do as I wish. Yes, madame, replied Amanda in a voice almost choked by the variety of painful emotions she experienced. Well then, we are agreed. As you know the salary I give, the master of the vessel now took his leave, never having been asked by Mrs Macpherson to take any refreshments. The heart of Amanda sunk within her from the moment she entered Mrs Macpherson's door. She shuddered at being left with so unsociable a being in a place so wild and dreary. A hovel near St Catherine's, she would have fought a palace in point of real comfort to her present habitation, as she then could have enjoyed the soothing society of the tender and amenable nuns. The presence of the master of the vessel, from the pity and concern he manifested for her, had something consolatory in it. And when he left the room was she burst into tears, as if then, and not till then, she had been utterly abandoned. She hastily followed him out. Give my love, my best love, said she, sobbing violently, and laying her trembling hand on his to Mrs Dermot, and tell her, oh, tell her to write directly and give me some comfort. You may depend on my doing so, replied he, but cheer up, my dear young lady. What though the old dame in the parlour is a little, a little cranky? She will mend, no doubt. So heaven bless you, and make you as happy as you deserve to be. Sad and silent, Amanda returned to the parlour, and seating herself in the window, strained her eyes after the carriage which had brought her to this dismal spot. End of chapter 41, part 2